Well, let's stand and read our scripture text together this morning, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. You may be seated. I was wondering this morning, how many of you have heard of Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law, most of you, okay. It's, it's, a, it's a little dose of reality that's attributed to uh, Air Force Captain Edward Murphy, who uh, was a captain in the Air Force uh, and uh, an American aerospace engineer shortly after the close of World War II. Murphy's Law says that in any field of endeavor, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And uh, some people add to that at the worst possible moment. Secondly, left to themselves, things always go from bad to worse. Third, if there's a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will go wrong is the one that will cause the most damage. Fourth, nature always sides with the hidden law. And then finally, if everything is going well, you've obviously overlooked something. And, and I couldn't help thinking of Murphy's Law when I read verse 1 of chapter 6. You know, Luke is a, a very effective writer. He's effective in uh, providing his readers with a sense of the movement of time and progress. And he's also very effective at addressing real problems with complete candor. Uh, isn't it interesting that the way that he introduces the subject matter of these seven verses, just when things seem to be back on track, uh, going relatively well again for the fledgling church, a complaint arises. Complaint arises. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You know, growth in the church is a blessing from the Lord. Uh, growth, growth ought to be our goal. God desires that lost people be found and, and come to faith in Christ and be added to the church. Um, when I heard Josh Freeman say that uh, they've gone from 17 churches to 29 churches in their church planting ministry, I thought, wow, headache. You know, great, great, great blessing, great things to be thankful for, but uh, going from 17 to 29 churches uh, creates problems, no doubt creates logistical challenges. The complaint here in the church in Jerusalem wasn't immediately written up, duplicated, appropriately laid on the desks of the 12 apostles. No. Like so many complaints that arise in the church, uh, unfortunately, it, it manifested first 
in the form of murmuring, gossiping, and grumbling. In fact, you can almost hear it in the Greek word that's translated complaint, which is ganguzmas. And uh, it's kind of one of those onomatopoeias. You know, it sounds like what it means, ganguzmas. It just kind of sounds like grumbling and mumbling and muttering, right? It describes a grudging discontent that gets addressed in the dark murk below the social surface before it gets exposed to the light of day. In this case, it it represented a fracture in the fellowship of the church. In verse 1, we're reminded that the early church was a multi-ethnic, multicultural church from the get-go, from the day of Pentecost going forward. Remember who was there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that day that Jesus sent the promised Holy Spirit and the disciples began to praise God in other tongues. Luke told us that Jews from many countries around the Mediterranean were there in Jerusalem and they were hearing Jesus' disciples declaring the mighty works of God, praising God in the native languages of those countries. The disciples were were Galileans. They were just you know, hicks from the sticks. But here they are praising God in tongues that they had never learned, languages they had never learned. And and those people from all those countries that were there in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost for the feast were hearing the praises of God in their own native languages. And 3,000 people believed in Jesus Christ that day were baptized and were added to the church. So we shouldn't be taken by surprise when we read in verse 1 of chapter 6 that that the complaint that arose on behalf of the Hellenist Jewish Christians against the Hebrew Jewish Christians because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and perhaps other resources as well. Well, who were the Hellenists? In this case, they were Listen now, religiously Jewish, but in every other way, Greek. In their ethnicity, in their cultural orientation, their their outlook on life, in their language. In other words, in their speech and their outlook and their way of life, they were distinctively Greek. By the way, have you ever wondered where that word Hellenistic comes from? Maybe you don't have the same problems I have, and I have to have to figure things out. Why were the Greeks called Hellenists? Who was Helen anyway, you know? And I did a little research, and it turns out that in ancient Greece, Helen was a male name, not a female name. And in Greek mythology, Helen was the son of Zeus and Pyrrha, and was the progenitor or the father of all the Greek people. So to be Hellenist is to be Greek. To be Greek is to be Hellenist. And by contrast... The Hebrew Jews were religiously Jewish, linguistically Aramaic, and in every other way they were distinctively Hebrew, both ethnically and culturally. See what's going on? A little bit? Well, let's leave it right there for a moment, and let's just pause and observe that uh, the church in every generation has a biblical mandate to care for the vulnerable among us, including widows, including widows. As early as the giving of the law to the Israelites through Moses, God said, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow 
or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. You know what that means. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation. King David wrote in the 68th Psalm, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And in Psalm 146, we read, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The prophets also took up this theme. For example, in Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then in the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, reminded the church that religion is that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this matter of caring for the vulnerable, in this case the widows who were part of the church, was to be taken with great seriousness. It matters to God. Therefore, it should matter a great deal to his people and to the church, and we should approach this God-given responsibility with great care. And it seems that, for the most part, the early church understood this because there was already a daily distribution of food and, I suppose, other resources as well. But we need to come back now to the nature of the complaint that had arisen. It wasn't just that the system wasn't working properly. It wasn't just a logistical issue. It was the reality, or at least the perception, of the Hellenists that the widows among them were being neglected in favor of the Hebrew widows. So the complaint was that there was at least ethnic discrimination, if not racial discrimination, taking place in the church. And the daily distribution was the touch point or the flash point where this complaint focuses. Let's observe clearly together that ethnic division in the church is a threat to the identity of the church and the mission of the church. In chapters 4 and 5, we've already seen serious attacks by Satan against the church, both from without and from within. And this time, on this occasion, he slips in through the side door, seeks to divide the church along ethnic lines. And what we need to understand with clarity is that this represented a significant threat. Why? Because the church that Jesus had in mind is a multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual community of men and women called by God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and supernaturally glued together by the Holy Spirit. And at any time and in any place that we allow ourselves to succumb to division along those lines, we first forfeit our identity as the church. We cease to be the church. Remember John's vision in Revelation 7? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Won't that be amazing to join them? Man, I, I, I get goosebumps when I think about it. Listen to what Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized. We were all, all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And he exhorted the church in Colossae, here, here in the church, the church of Jesus Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now let's remember and never forget that Jesus commanded us in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that we are to make disciples of all nations. That, that, that phrase, all nations, in, is ta ethne. It means every ethnicity, every people group on the face of the earth. And so again, if we allow ourselves to give in to that sinful racial prejudice that lurks in the heart of every one of us, and we allow ourselves to succumb to racial and ethnic divisions in the church, both the identity of the church and the mission of the church is instantly derailed. Later in the New Testament writings, we we meet a group of Jewish Christians uh, to whom theologians have given the label Judaizers. And the contention of the Judaizers was that in order for Gentiles, like you and me, to become Christian, they first had to become Jewish. And men, you you know what that means. They had to become Jewish. They had to be proselytes to Judaism so that they could become truly Christian. What they wanted was not an international church, a multi-ethnic church, a multiracial church, a multilingual church. They wanted a Jewish church. And don't all of us kind of want to create the church in our own image? Don't we? Say yes. Because we do. We, we want the church to be like us. We want to be a, a part of a church of people that look just like us and sound just like us, value the things that we value. See, you and I would not be here today had the Judaizers prevailed and had the Council of Jerusalem wisely not put a stop to their efforts. And we'll get to that later uh, as we move forward in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And yet, this is a test for leaders in every generation of the church because the human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Racism, discrimination of every kind are endemic to our sinful humanity. And so we need to keep confronting it in our own hearts and in the life of the church when it rears its ugly head. When See, when we unite our fellowship around Jesus Christ, instead of allowing cultural or ethnic or racial distinctives to divide us, it's a demonstration first of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Apostle Peter wrote, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You know, LifePoint Church is not my flock. Sometimes people will talk to me and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll ask, how, how's your church going? And, and, and I understand what they mean, but, but I also know it's not my church, not my flock, nor is it the flock of any given leader to do with as he or she wills. LifePoint Church is the flock of God. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Leaders at LifePoint and in every genuinely Christian congregation are simply under-shepherds to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We are to shepherd his flock, his entire flock, and we're to do that in his way. In verses 2 to 4, values are clarified. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number, the whole congregation of the disciples, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Having been made aware of the the complaint that had arisen, the apostles responded promptly. They responded with clarity. And it's important that we understand the nature of their response, because some reading this passage uh where, where we read it's not right that we should give up preaching of the Word of God to serve tables, some people reading that would say it sounds like a protest. It sounds a little whiny. Oh, we don't want to do that. It could sound like they were saying that the work of, of serving tables, of, of serving these widows was somehow beneath their dignity. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. But understand this morning that it wasn't that at all. What it was was a, a clarification of values. They had been given, the apostles, a, a, a specific commission by the Lord Jesus. Theirs was a unique and essential calling that included unique gifting, and they embraced the unique priorities and the unique investments that came with that calling and gifting. So that what they were acknowledging is that the church is filled with people who have different callings and different giftings, and that the present crisis needed to be delegated to others within the church. So that if the apostles had allowed social administration to occupy their time, they would have prevented others from exercising their giftedness, and they would have been prevented from doing the work which Christ had specifically entrusted to them, namely the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God and prayer. And this, in turn, would prove to be another means by which the progress of the gospel could have been derailed. Something I want you to understand and bear in mind is that the apostolic function of leadership in the church eventually transferred to pastors and elders. What I mean by that is that as the apostles evangelized outward from Jerusalem, they in turn progressively delegated the responsibility and the authority for shepherding those local churches in all those places to qualified indigenous leaders in every place. A clear example of this is seen in Acts chapter 20 when Paul said farewell for the very last time for the leaders to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he said. 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. See, the primary role of pastors and elders is to attend to the spiritual needs of the people. Well, what's the specific calling of an elder? Start with that. The word itself points to the primary responsibility. The the word that's translated elder in the New Testament is the word, is actually a word that means overseer. Overseer. One who is called by God to literally keep an eye on the church and to protect, provide, and provide for and feed the flock of God that is under their care. An elder exercises authority in the church. That authority is given to enable him to carry out the responsibility that is his to oversee and care for the flock. How's a pastor different from an elder? The answer is that a pastor is himself also an elder, And he also must meet the qualifications of an elder that were laid down by the Apostle Paul in his letters to Timothy and Titus. I'm not going to read them to you. They're long. You can read them yourselves. Pastors uh, are to work hand-in-hand with the other elders. But not all elders are specifically gifted the way that pastors are. The word pastor uh, is translated from the Greek word that means shepherd. And and pastors are the the primary feeders and leaders of the local church. In Ephesians 4, another gift is combined with that of pastor, and that's the gift of teacher. And a lot of people consider that the two are actually one gift, that they actually ought to be hyphenated so that it sounds like pastor-teacher. But the shared responsibility and, and priority of pastors and elders is to attend together to the spiritual well-being of the church. So prayer and the ministry of preaching and teaching the Word of God are at the center of that care. In verses 2 and 4, back in chapter 6, we read, And the twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, that was a lot of people by that point, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Occasionally someone will ask me, Pastor, how much time do you spend preparing your messages? And, uh, you know, sometimes I think, well, maybe you should prepare a little less or your sermons get a little shorter, you know. I think that's kind of their motivation. Not sure. But but I I spend probably 30 hours a week studying to teach on Sunday mornings because it's that important. I want to know, and and you ought to want to know, when I stand before you and I deliver God's Word to you, that it's God's Word and not my opinion. That that it's not just, you know, nice ideas, but but that I'm bringing God's Word to you uh, with clarity and without apology. Well, some have suggested that the selection of the seven men here in Acts 6 represents the historical initiation of the office of deacon in the church. And uh, the word that's translated deacon is is also sometimes translated servant. 
But I struggle to see how that's the case here. It's, it's true that the word diakoneo is present in the text, but, but it's used as a verb. It's there in verse 2. It's not a noun, and it means to serve, to serve tables. But apparently the role of deacon became a designated office in some of the early churches, though not all, because in some of his letters, Paul gives instructions to them. And in those cases, the primary role of deacons is to attend to the practical needs of the church. For example, in this case, serving the needs of widows. I also find it interesting that the literal meaning of the word diakonos is to kick up a little dust. It actually means thoroughly dust. Um, <laughs> but, but the idea is that as we do, or as deacons do what they do, they kick up dust. They raise dust because they're in a hurry to accomplish tasks and they're, they're kicking up a little dust as they go. The, the church needs to be full of dust raisers. Some of us used to be hell raisers. We need to become dust raisers. I've been asked once or twice whether we have deacons at LifePoint, and the answer is that we don't have people that bear the title of deacon, but we have lots of people who are serving in a variety of ways, and there is always, 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 always a great need for more because there is always more to do than any of us can get done. I don't miss that the apostles understood that meeting the needs of widows and ensuring equal treatment for each of them required godly men. Godly men. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice the three qualifications. They were to be of good repute, to have good reputations within the church and outside the church. The same requirement is part of the requirement for an elder. Secondly, they were to be full of the Spirit of God. The, the fullness of the Spirit was, was to be evident in and through their lives, their character, their values, their lifestyle, their relationships. And they were to be full of wisdom, which means they, they were men who reverenced the Lord, who ordered their personal lives according to the Word of God, and so were able to teach and counsel others in godly ways. So I think it's kind of remarkable, don't you? Because I think we, we, we often are tempted today for an assignment like the one that was theirs to, to totally bypass considerations of character and spirituality and just recruit a group of willing people with a pulse. You know, you got a pulse? Yep. Can you walk? Yep. Let's go. You know, people, uh, who, who have a car or a bicycle and some spare time. Or to recruit people whose qualifications are primarily administrative, whose resumes highlight skills obtained in the world of business. There's a lot of people that are, that are promoted to leadership in churches because they're, they're successful in business outside the church. The church is not a business. The church is not a business. The church is an organism. It's a spiritual community. And either one of those temptations could have, could prove to be a fatal mistake when it comes to directing a ministry of the church that, that requires spiritual maturity and relational effectiveness, real wisdom. Notice that having designated the number, which was seven, 
I don't know why he said why they said seven. And in, in scripture, it's the number of perfection. It represents God's perfect finished work. Maybe that's what they had in mind. They also designated the the requisite qualifications. And then the apostles put the responsibility for the selection of these men on the congregation. You do it. You figure it out. And when the congregation had finished their work, then the elders would would lay hands on them and appoint them, giving them the standing and the authority necessary to carry out those responsibilities. In verses 5 and 6, the church responds. It says, What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. I want you to know this morning that congregational government is not a biblical concept, but congregational consensus is. In congregational government, the church gets to vote on nearly everything, including the color of the walls and the carpet. Uh, Elders, deacons, trustees are elected by popular vote. But you will never find a hint of congregational government in the New Testament. Um, Leaders in the New Testament were never elected. They were always appointed, first early on by the apostles themselves, later by elders and pastors, and always on the basis of godly character as the first priority. Some people say, well, if it's good enough for the good old USA, it's good enough in the church. Wrong. Do you know that, that is, if, if you, if you study this and you start, you can start at Genesis and work your way throughout, forward, all the way through Revelation, on nearly every occasion, the majority was wrong. The majority was wrong. God designed the church so that leaders are appointed. And it says there in verse uh, 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Sometimes what the elders decide doesn't please the whole gathering, does it? Sometimes what elders decide causes people to scratch their heads and say, what were they thinking? And leaders sometimes have to make unpopular decisions, but they are called nevertheless to lead. The church then engaged a deliberative process of selection. It's there in that word, that phrase, and they chose. They didn't take it lightly. They they didn't get in a hurry. The word actually means, literally, to engage a deliberative process of selection that arrives at a definite conclusion or outcome. They They heard the requisite qualifications. They surveyed the congregation, and their hearts came together on seven men. And notice that, that the apostles never said that these guys should be Hebrew or Greek. There, there was no ethnic designation. There was no ethnic uh, qualification. But interestingly, each of the men selected to the responsibility were both godly and Greek. The 2G network, godly and Greek. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
And again, I find this surprising and remarkable because all seven of the names are Greek in origin. The congregation came together. They scanned the congregation and said, who are the men most qualified that best fit the the qualifications laid out by the apostles? And somehow out of all of that, the men they chose were all Greek. Stephen. Stephanos, his name means crown of victory. A man that Luke takes the time to tell us was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He became the first martyr of the church, and we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. Philip, Philippos, not to be confused with Philip the Apostles, another guy. And his name means Wendy, horse lover. He, he's, He was an equestrian, I guess, Philip the horse lover. By the way, in the next chapters, the focus shifts to these first two men on the list. First Stephen and then Philip. And then there's Prochorus. His name means before the dance. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if he's the guy that bought the the booze before the dance. or I, I, I don't know, but before the dance. Nicanor, his name comes from the mythological Greek goddess Nike. His name means the victorious man. Timon, not to be confused with Pumbaa's sidekick. His name means highly valued, honorable, respectable. Parmenas, not to be confused with the cheese you put on your spaghetti. His name means one who comes alongside, who is constant and faithful. And then there's Nicholas, or actually Nicolaus, not to be confused with St. Nicholas. His name also derives, even though he was a saint, his name also derives from that mythological Greek goddess Nike, and his name means victory for the people. As a result of all of that, the church and its mission grows. Could have been derailed. Could have been really messed up. But the church and its mission grows. The Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know, some would say that numbers shouldn't matter to the church. I I hear that quite frequently. I would say that Luke would disagree. Luke would disagree. The Word of God continued to increase. The word increase is oxano, and here it means, uh, it refers to the increasing external influence of the gospel message. So that we've already seen that there were, Luke tells us there were 3,000. He gives us a number on the day of Pentecost. 5,000. And that was just the men when the lame man was healed in the name of Jesus at the beautiful gate of the temple. Multitudes after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira as the fear of the Lord gripped the church and all who heard what had happened to them. In chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Today that the disciples were increasing in number, and in 6-7 the number of disciples multiplied greatly. As the word of God increased, the church was multiplied. And previously, Luke has told us that the church grew by addition. Now notice this, that he's telling us the church is growing by multiplication. That adverb, greatly, refers to an unprecedented exponential growth curve. And the church is not just growing, it's about to explode. And the mission of the church is making further inroads into the Jewish leadership structure. Why? Because they did things God's way. They did things God's way. 
because the church took seriously the commands of Moses and the other prophets to care for the oppressed and, and the command of Jesus to love each other truly and tangibly because they clarified values and made the proper adjustments in the structure of the ministry of the church. You know, we have now seen in, in these early chapters of Acts Four tactics, we're going to see more, but we've seen four tactics which the devil used in his overall strategy to stop the church, to destroy the church. First, he tried to suppress it by force through the Jewish authorities. Secondly, he tried to corrupt it, didn't he, by the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Third, he tried to divide it along ethnic and cultural lines as we've seen today. And fourth, to distract its leadership from their central priorities of prayer and preaching because of the conflict between the widows. And I would just submit to you today that if he had succeeded in any of those attempts, the new community of Jesus would have been destroyed in its infancy. But the apostles were sufficiently alert to detect the schemes of the devil and acted wisely and swiftly to address those issues with spirit-directed practical solutions that simultaneously built up the church and advanced its mission. When each part is working properly, the church grows and builds itself up in love. And in case you were daydreaming just then, let me just... Let me just repeat that. When, when the, each part is working properly, the church grows and builds itself up in love. And maybe you didn't hear me when I said that, but so let me repeat that when, when each part is working properly, the church grows and builds itself up in love. And maybe you're hard of hearing, so let me just repeat that. When each part is working properly, the church grows and builds itself up in love. So I hope that you understood that when each part is working properly, the church grows and builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4.16, he makes the whole body, he that is Jesus, makes the whole body fit together perfectly. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. How many of you would like to be a church, part of a church that is healthy and growing and full of love? How many? Amen? So the key to that is that when each part is working properly, the church grows and builds itself up in love. See, each of us needs to find our lane and in that lane kick up some dust. So stop being a hell raiser or a complaint raiser and kick up some dust. Start serving. You're needed. And when, when you do that, when you serve there faithfully and persistently and tenaciously, regardless of the cost, it unlocks the power of God that is for the church and is expressed through the church. You often hear the, the term calling in relationship to pastors and preachers, right? They have a calling from God. Well, I'm here to tell you that that every one of us has a calling. That's a goofed up way of thinking. 
And the greatest, the highest calling for each of us is to find our giftedness and to to serve faithfully and intelligently according to that giftedness in the power of the Holy Spirit. My gift is different. It puts me in a different place. I get to be up here. You get to sit back from the spit zone down there. But each of us has our place. And each of us is necessary. My calling is not higher than your calling. There's no higher calling than the one God has given you to serve according to your giftedness, the way that he's wired you. One of the things we learned during the pandemic is that we don't have a great network for caring for people. There are a lot of people who just didn't hear from us during the pandemic. And and we realized, oops, we're not structured to do what the pandemic required of us. And so we're working to create a care network of people who simply make a regular contact and say, how you doing? We're praying for you. How, how, how can, what, what can I pass on to the pastors and elders that would help them care for you better? If you'd like to be part of that network, we'd, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I want to say, why not? Why not? And if today is the day that you would say, yep, I'm going to, I'm going to make that decision. We'd love to be able to talk with you and pray with you about that. Let's bow in prayer together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to read uh, words that come from your Holy Spirit and inform us about how we ought to be living our lives as the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we serve each other. May we kick up a lot of dust serving each other that you would be glorified, that the gospel would be advanced through us, and that the world would see that we are your disciples because we love one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.